Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope Church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I want to put a word up on the screen as I begin today, and I want you to think about in your heart, don't say it out loud, but what comes to mind when you see this word? Here's the word. Church. For a lot of people, when they think about the word church, the first thing they think about is a place where they go. Matter of fact, we even use the word like that. I'm going to go to the church. Maybe you said that this morning. I'm going to go to the church. And we're talking about a building, a place where we go. Or sometimes we don't mean necessarily the place. We're talking about an event where we are going to attend. We'll say we're going to go to church this weekend. And what we mean by that is we're going to go to this event. We're going to attend this gathering. For a long time at Hope Church, it wasn't about a place because we met in nine different locations in our first 10 years. It was about a gathering, an event. But can I tell you what we should think about or maybe what I think about when I think about the word church? It's the word family. Family. I've always believed that I've always believed biblically that the church is a family, but I tell you, I've never experienced it like I have since God called me to Las Vegas. When God called us out here almost 20 years ago, we left all of our physical family behind, and we relocated 2,000 miles. And man, as I look around this room today, there are people in here, you're, you're as much my family as anybody on planet Earth. This is, this is family. I believe that Hope Church, before we're anything else, we are a family. And for a year together as a family, we've been studying through the New Testament letter of Ephesians. And this idea of family is one of the truths that we've learned in Ephesians. Let me show it to you again, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to give you these in the, living, the New Living Translation, but here's the way they write it. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Do you hear that? All of us, all of us come to the Father. He said, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. If you believe we're a family, say amen. amen. Now I want you to do something this morning. I want you to look around for a minute. It's going to be awkward, but just look around. Just look around you, look at the people around you, make some eye contact. I know it's uncomfortable, but listen, if you think this is uncomfortable, we're about to get uncomfortable, all right? As you look around the room, I recognize in a room like this, some of you are here and you're visiting today, and if you've walked in today as a guest, we're honored that you're here. You need to know today's one of the days we're really leaning in to talk to our family today. We, we're thrilled that you're here, apart, here for a part of what we're going to talk about today, but, but we're going to really lean into talking about family today and what we are as the family of God. But as you looked around the room today, I hope you noticed there's a lot of diversity in the room. We, we look different than one another. We're, we're different people, but as you looked around the room and made eye contact, I want you to know a spiritual reality. You were looking at your family. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the people in this room are your family. So let me give it to you in a a simple thought. Church is not simply a place to which we go or an event to which we attend. Church is a family to which we belong. It's a family. God's called me to be a pastor. I, I pastor Hope Church. I get to do that with a group of pastors who lead together here. And we have a responsibility to shepherd this family under the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. And, and at times as the shepherd, I sense a burden from the Lord for a specific issue in the life of our family. And today's message that I'm going to be preaching to you is really born out of one of those specific burdens that God's given me for Hope Church, and it's been born as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. You know this, if you're familiar with us at Hope Church, we teach straight through books of Scripture. So what that means is we always know what's next. We, we can look ahead and see where we're going. And as pastors, one of the practices that we do is we look ahead several weeks and we're living in passages of Scripture weeks before. You, you think sometimes, I hear some of you say, man, these sermons, boy, they're tough. Listen, you got to live with it for weeks, man. We have to walk with some of this stuff for weeks in preparation. And in doing that with this passage of Scripture... As I approach the verses that I'm going to be reading this morning, the only way I know how to describe it is there was a heaviness in my heart for our church family. I had a burden. I talked with our other pastors, and we sought counsel from even other people, and we contemplated and prayed over this passage of Scripture, and it led us to today. I want to address a subject today from our study in Ephesians, and here's the subject. How to be a diverse family in a divided world. We're a diverse family. Amen? We live in a divided world. Amen? We want to talk about that today. And I want to say, even as we begin today, because some people, will they see the title, and immediately they begin to say, oh, he's about to get political. No, listen, what I'm about to talk about has nothing to do with politics. We're about to talk about spiritual truth that has spiritual application in the lives of us as God's family. And I pray today as we walk through this, you you ask the Holy Spirit of God to speak to you, regardless of where you come from, to arrive at the conversation today. We all need God to speak to us. God has not only made us a family here at Hope Church, He's graciously chosen to make this local expression of His church one with many cultures and backgrounds. Believe me when I say it, that one of my favorite parts of this fellowship is the diversity of this church. It's one of the things that I brag on as I travel and speak other places. We have over 54 languages that we know of in this fellowship, and it brings joy to my soul every Sunday to gather here and look around this room and know we got just a little head start on what heaven's going to look like. Amen? It's one of the things that thrills me about belonging to this church. This is the church I always longed to pastor, even when I didn't know what I now know. See, I grew up in Alabama. The church that I went to was an all-white church. It wasn't because anybody ever said that. It's just in Alabama and the culture there, it's just the way people go to church. The white people go to one church. The Hispanic people go to a different church. The black people go to a different church. And that's the way church is done. I just grew up in that environment. But I, I, even in growing up in it, I just knew that there, 
had to be a different expression of the church. I knew that couldn't be the way it was supposed to be. Then I pastored my first church in the state of Tennessee. And while pastoring a church in the state of Tennessee, one of the things that led to that church asking for my resignation was a battle that took place over fighting the sin of racism in that fellowship. I, I, I experienced that personally, and, and I just knew that, that there had to be another way. I knew the gospel was more powerful than Sunday morning being the most segregated hour of the week. Let me tell you why I knew that. One of the reasons, one of the reasons why I knew that is I've read the end of the book. And when you read the end of the book, you know the story's going to turn out different than the way a lot of churches look in our country today. Let me read it for you out of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. you got to understand that what I'm about to read for you, God in his sovereignty allowed John to see something that exists in eternity future. It has not happened yet, but it already is. Now you say, explain that. I just did the best I could. <laughs> Let me read it to you. John says, after these things, and he's talking about what he saw in the first six chapters, and that was already a heavy load. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before. It literally means in the presence of the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I've read the end of the story and the gospel not only reconciles us with God, but the gospel reconciles us with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. But being a diverse family still has its challenges. It has its challenges internally. We are a collision of cultures. That's who we are here at Hope Church. You can't bring this many people together and there not be challenges period. Let me give you a definition of culture. This is from sociologists. Here's the definition of culture. It's the patterns of learned and shared behavior and beliefs of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. Culture doesn't have to be ethnicity. It can be age. It can be demographic. It can be social. It can be economic. But, but we all come from really a blend of cultural backgrounds. We've been redeemed by Jesus. Wikipedia says culture is the way of life for groups of people or the way they do things. We've all been redeemed in Jesus, but we all come from cultural backgrounds where we do things somewhat differently. Now, some aspects of our culture are rooted simply in our flesh, and they need to be transformed through the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. We don't get to just lay the culture card down and say, well, you just got to know. Sometimes our culture needs to be repented of, and sometimes our culture needs to, to what, what, what we call a cultural way of doing things needs to be transformed. Not all aspects of our culture are Christ-like. But at the same time, there are other parts of our culture that are part of the uniqueness of being created in the image of God and are to be celebrated in the unity of the gospel. 
Unity does not mean uniformity. We can be different. But because we allow for that, there's going to be tension at times. For example, even this conversation that we're having this morning can create tension. Let me be as transparent as I can be when I say that. There are some people from some cultures who see a topic like how to be a diverse family in a divided world. And here's their approach. Can't we just all get over this and move on? Even in a church like Hope where we love Jesus, there are people here that would say, can't we just get over this and move on? But there are other people from other cultures who approach this same conversation with the same rolling of the eyes, but it's for a different reason. They would say, this is a waste of time because my brothers and sisters in this room are simply never going to understand what I'm feeling or what I've experienced. So there's cultural collision taking place. At Hope Church, we want to be a multicultural church. Now, you hear that today as a buzzword in church, but what most people mean when they say multicultural is they want a multicolored church. Here's what they mean by that. We want different colors of people to attend the church, but we still want the church to function in one dominant culture as far as philosophy and strategy and expression of worship. At Hope Church, we want to be a multicultural church, which means we allow for the collision of culture. We think it's okay for the uniqueness of who we are in Christ to be expressed in the life of our church, which means at times we're all going to be uncomfortable. Let me give you an example. Worship service, okay? Pastor Teddy Johnson and I, or Teddy's over here. Teddy and I have been leading Hope together now for 16, almost 16 years. We've been doing life together as families and leading this fellowship together. But when, when Teddy first joined our team, you, you know God's got a sense of humor, right? He takes, you, you could not pick two guys from more different backgrounds. Teddy comes from inner city Camden, New Jersey. <laughs> Yeah, ain't nobody in here going to say that about my hometown because nobody even knows where it is. I come from rural southern Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I mean, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. And because of that, when God brought Teddy and I together, we came together with different cultures. For example, I grew up in a church where when we sang a song, the guy leading the song, would tell you to take the book and turn to a specific numbered page in the book. <laughs> Today we are going to sing number 242. Take your hymnal and open it up. And he would not only tell us what number we were going to sing in the book, he would tell us which numbers of the verses we were going to sing. We are going to sing today number 242. We're going to sing the first, second, and the last verse. And we all knew when the song began, and we all knew when the song ended. <laughs> then I meet Teddy Johnson. <laughs> Teddy would get up to lead at Hope and take a three-word chorus and sing it for 10 minutes. I was terrified to walk on stage because I never knew when the song was over. 
Not only that, sometimes he'd start writing another song while he was singing that one. (laughs) You know what that is? Collision of culture. But let me tell you what. Through that collision of culture... God's allowed me to speak into Teddy's life and and disciple him in areas of theology and doctrine. And God's allowed Teddy to speak in my life and disciple me in areas of freedom of worship and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm telling you today, Hope Church is a better church because we allow for multiple cultures to shape who we are as a fellowship under the blood of Christ. But it's challenging internally. To live this out. But it's not only challenging internally, it's challenging externally. We live in a society today that's being torn apart along the lines of culture. You see it in politics, sports, entertainment, business, education, really in every aspect of our society. And so we're this unique fellowship, this expression of the gospel, this what the songwriters would say, foretaste of glory divine that we are experiencing here on Sunday with internal discomfort and challenge that's being pulled by an external world that is dividing people along the lines of race and culture. And here's the conviction. As followers of Jesus, we must continue to pursue oneness, allowing the gospel to unite us rather than the world to divide us. Here's what I'm telling you. What we have at Hope Church is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. The world needs to see what God is doing here. They're looking for the answers, and the gospel is the answer. So, with that foundation... Let me read the verses in Ephesians that caused this angst, if you will, in my heart that led us to this conversation today. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, and masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Anybody uncomfortable yet? When you come to a passage of Scripture like that, there are a few options. Option number one is you skip it. And I'll be honest with you. A lot of churches do. I've never heard anybody from my culture teach these verses the way I'm about to teach them this morning. I'm not saying I'm the only one who's done it. I'm just saying I've never been in a situation where I've heard it done. Never. In the churches that I've experienced, option number two, what mostly gets done in the churches that I experienced growing up is that they approach these verses dealing with principles of employers and employees. Now, 
before we condemn that, we've actually done that at Hope in other sections of Scripture that have had similar language. And it's not wrong to do so, and I'll show you why in just a few moments. There are some principles you can extract that do speak to those issues. For example, one of the commentaries that we've been reading, you've heard us quote throughout this series multiple times over the last year. Here was their take on these verses. To employees, what God is saying is glorify Christ by working respectfully, wholeheartedly, willingly, and expectantly. Nothing untrue about that. All of us as employees are to work respectfully, wholeheartedly, willingly, and expectantly. To employers, here's what the commentary said. Practice mutuality, avoid hostility, live with Christ-centered accountability, and remember God's impartiality. Again, nothing untrue about that. Every employer should live that way under the blood of Christ. The problem is (laughs) to simply take that approach ignores the giant question in the room. Why didn't Paul go further in addressing the evils of slavery? Why was there not a statement of condemnation here? It's a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to try to do the best I can this morning and then bring some application for us. If you're ready, say amen. Amen. Number one, although we have Paul's letter contained in the most influential book in human history, and here's what I mean by that. When we see the Bible, we see it like this, as the number one best-selling book in the history of the world. We know the Bible because we live this side of the 1600s. We know the Bible as something that everybody has access to, that everybody can have, that everybody has on the shelf. We see this book as the most influential book in human history. But when the letter to the Ephesian church was originally written, you have to understand it was only to a small group of Christians who had absolutely no influence in society. Here's what I mean by that. We sometimes think about the Bible like we would the Gettysburg Address or the Federalist Papers. Significant historical documents that were written in a time of society to address an evil in society. But that's not why the Bible was written when it was written. When Paul wrote this letter, it was not addressing the structure of society. It was a letter teaching a small group of Christians how to follow Jesus in whatever circumstances they found themselves in within society. Paul was not writing to change society. He was writing to change people about how they were to live within the brokenness of society. Paul knew that following Jesus did not offer us and escape from our circumstances, but it did promise us victory in the midst of our circumstances. So Paul was writing to believers within the midst of a broken system about how they, even within the brokenness, could experience freedom that was found in Christ. But there's a second reason why Paul didn't go further. Because slavery in Paul's day was very different from slavery in the American experience. We read these verses. When we hear the term slaves and masters, immediate images come to our mind from American history books and movies and Discovery Channel scenes that we've seen play out describing a very dark part of American history. 
But Roman slavery was very different. Let me give you some examples. Roman slavery was not based on race at all. Slaves in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million of them, by the way, in the Roman Empire. Slaves became slaves either by birth, their parents were slaves, or by being orphaned, or by being taken captive in war. You remember reading in the Old Testament, there were times when the children of Israel were slaves because they'd been taken captive as as wartime uh, combatants. Also, sometimes people became slaves because they had an inability to pay off a public debt. They owed a debt they couldn't pay, so slavery was the penalty. Sometimes in Rome, people became slaves voluntarily because they saw it as a means to a better standing in life. So the slavery that we read about, Paul was not writing in the context of a race-motivated slavery. Number two, Roman slavery was not all menial, unskilled labor. It was not just being out in a field doing manual labor. As a matter of fact, in the day of Rome, it was beneath the citizens of Rome to have to work. And so the slaves were all the positions of work. For example, in Rome, slaves could be clerks, cashiers, bookkeepers, bank officers, doctors, and teachers. And that's why sometimes the application of employer-employee relationships is applicable because in Paul's day, slavery included all of those experiences. Number three, Romans, Roman slavery was not lifelong. There was hope for freedom. There was hope for freedom. Remember reading in the New Testament about a governor named Felix? Felix, who interviewed Paul in one of his incarcerations. Felix, the governor, historical documents show that his family started as slaves And once they had obtained their freedom, he went all the way from being a slave to being recorded in Scripture as a governor in Roman society. So it was not a condemnation to lifelong freedom. So you have to understand when Paul chooses his words here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he was writing for a different reason, and he was writing in a very different context than what we understand in American experience. However, all that being said, slavery in any form, is still wrong. It's wrong and it's evil. One of the massive stains on American history is how many of our nation's founders abused this particular passage of Scripture to endorse and allow slavery. At that time, unfortunately, many Christians allowed, listen to this, they allowed the norms of society to shape their interpretation of Scripture rather than allowing a right interpretation of Scripture to bring about change in society. And let me just make a side note here. We better be very careful of the church today that we don't look down our nose at the church in the past and make the exact same mistake. Just because our country and our legislators may say something is legal and society Society may deem it as appropriate does not mean that it is right for the child of God. The Scripture is our ultimate authority, and we must never allow the norms of society to shape the way we interpret the truths of Scripture. We must always allow the truth of Scripture to shape the way we live our lives in society. That being said, it happened in American history. That part of American history is one of our darkest hours, and it's one that demands repentance. I thank God 
for Christian abolitionists like William Wilberforce or Harriet Tubman or Harriet Beecher Stowe, or Sojourner Truth, or Frederick Douglass, men and women of God that God used by His grace to turn the page of American history for us as a nation. These brothers and sisters in Christ did not focus on what Paul didn't say. They focused on what he did say. And let me tell you what he did say. I want to give you a few things that Paul said, not only in this passage, but throughout his writing in the New Testament. That's a very clear statement about slavery. Number one, Paul states that who we are in Christ, not who we are in society, determines our relationship. Who we are in Christ. Ten years before Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian church. When Paul went to plant the church in Ephesus, he'd just come from having written this letter to the church in Galatia. I promise you, when Paul planted the church in Ephesus, the things that he wrote to the Galatian church, he was teaching those same things to the Ephesian church. They had that context when they read Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. Listen to what he said to the Galatian church. For you are, say the next word out loud, all sons of who? Listen, that was a radical statement in its day. It was a radical statement in his day. Paul was looking at a church made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. And he said, listen, I want to say a blank statement about all of us. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Look what he said. For you all were baptized into Christ Jesus, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul looked right into the face of a society that was living very differently from this and said, listen, as Christians, that's not how we relate to each other anymore. We relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. Secondly, Paul states that who we are in Christ demands a change in how we relate to each other in society. Because of our relationship with Christ, we now relate to each other differently. Don't forget the foundation. Put Ephesians 5.21 up here. What we just read in the Bible where Paul speaks about slaves and masters is still under this umbrella that we've been talking about for six weeks of being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Everything we unpacked about husbands and wives and parents and children was lived out under this verse of living in Christ-like mutual submission to one another. Paul's speaking into this situation in society, and he's speaking to both slaves and masters and says, hey, listen, because of who you are in Christ, society's labels don't matter. You are now to live in mutual Christ-like submission to one another. Then Paul, the third thing he said, and he said it very clearly, states that participation in slavery is contrary to the teaching of the gospel. Paul wrote a letter called 1 Timothy. Many don't often associate it with Ephesians, but we should. You know why? You know what church Timothy pastored? The church at Ephesus. Paul left Timothy to pastor the Ephesian church. So before he got to Ephesus, he taught in Galatians that we're not Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're one in Christ. After he leaves Ephesus, he writes a letter to them stating we're one family in Christ. Then he writes a letter to their pastor. And listen to what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, but we know that the law is good. Talking about the Old Testament law. If one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. What does that mean? 
He said it's made for those who are lawless and rebellious. Meaning this, the law was never given for us to keep the law to earn righteousness before God. The law was given to show us how we had an inability to keep the law to point us to our need for a Savior in Jesus. So the law was never given as something for us to earn standing with God. But he said it was given for the lawless and rebellious. Now listen how he describes these people. Lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. That's quite a list, huh? For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and, what's the next word? Kidnappers. You know what the root word of the word kidnapper is? The root word is the word translated in the book of Ephesians as slave. The phrase kidnapping here is referring to stealing people and selling them into slavery. It's the practice of participating in the buying and selling of human beings for the purpose of slavery. And listen to what Paul goes on to say. And liars and perjurers and whatever else is, listen to this, contrary to sound teaching. Here's what Paul said. Paul said to take another human being and to purchase them and to sell them into slavery is contrary to the sound teaching of the glorious gospel that I have been entrusted with. You can't make a stronger statement about it yet. As long as there is humanity, or excuse me, as long as there is sin in humanity, racism, sexism, bigotry, and even slavery will be a part of the world that we live in. We like to sit here today and think that that's a thing of the past, but as you know, as we sit here today, there are 40 million slaves today on planet Earth. That's one out of every 200 people. We got about a thousand seats in here. You do the math. As long as there's sin in the world, we're going to have to deal with this stuff. But listen, Jesus is in the process of redeeming us from our sin. And as his followers, the gospel demands that we no longer relate to one another in those ways. Here's what that means. There is no place in the church of Jesus Christ for racism and bigotry and sexism and hatred. We have been called to love one another and we must pursue it radically radically so with that introduction <laughs> you think i'm kidding i want to give a word to our church i'm going to do it under two major statements here's the first one we are one I want you to say that out loud with me. We are one. Listen, you need to hear that because everything out there is going to tell you you're not. But we're one. 68 times in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he uses language addressing or referring to the oneness that we have in Christ. Here's what that means. We're not hoping to be one. We're not working on being one. We're not trying to be one. We are one in Christ. We are. Paul's challenging us to start living like who we already are. 
It's who we are. It's, it's one of the defining verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul said this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We used to be far from God, and we used to be far from each other, but now we've been brought near in the blood of Christ. There's a lot of talk today about us and them. Society wants to group us. And sometimes when they say us and them, it means black and white. Sometimes when it means us and them, it's American versus immigrant. Sometimes it is Republican versus Democrat. But hear me. For the child of God, there's only one us and there's only one them. Us may not be good English, but it's good theology. Us, us is those who have already been redeemed by the grace of God and experienced the power of the gospel and been born again into the family of God. Let me tell you who that is. That's us. And if you've come to know Jesus Christ, you are us. Let me tell you who them is. Them are those who need to experience the gospel and be born again into relationship with God and become a part of his family. That's it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't have cultural and community differences that make us unique. I'm not some way implying that we need to approach one another with this this fallacy of color blindness. What I am saying is that my primary identity is no longer my political party or my ethnicity or my background. My primary identity is who I am in Christ and who we are in Christ should change the way we relate to one another. Before we are, everything else is secondary. And the minute we begin to elevate one of those things and make it our primary identity, we're walking in the face of the sound teaching of the gospel that's united us together in the shed blood of Christ. We are one. Let me give you the second statement. We are becoming one. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Pastor. You just said we are one. And now you say we're becoming one. Which is it? Yes. (laughs) You see, when it comes to spiritual truth, there is a positional aspect of spiritual truth, and then there is a practical aspect of of, of spiritual truth. Let me explain it. Take it out of this context. Talk about it just in, in me personally. So the Bible says of me that I am righteous, positionally. You are too. If you're a child of God, you're righteous. The Bible calls you a saint. Now, what that doesn't mean is I now live saintly. If you don't believe me, let me bring my wife up here and let's interview her about my righteousness. You will find out that what is very true about me positionally, because listen, if that was not true about me positionally, I have no access to God. I'm not welcomed into the family. If I stand today clothed in my righteousness positionally, I can't draw near to God. But I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And because of who I am in Christ, I am righteous before God. Matter of fact, I'm as righteous before God today as I'm ever going to be. But practically... He's still working that out. What that means is I may not be all the person I used to be, but I'm also not the person I'm ultimately going to be. I'm in a process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. Listen, same thing's true about us. We are one. How do you know? I already read it at the end of the story. In Revelation, it's already worked out. 
But in practice, we're still becoming one. Revelation 7, it ain't here yet. So then, here's the question I want to close with. And, and by close, I mean the first of several closings. Again, you think I'm kidding. Here's the question. How do we experience practically the oneness we have in Christ positionally? How do we do it? Let me give you two keys. Number one, practicing oneness means actively pursuing gospel reconciliation. This isn't going to just passively happen. We've got to actively pursue gospel reconciliation. And let me give you a theological conviction that supports this truth at Hope. Here's what we believe. We believe the same gospel that declares us right with God demands we pursue right relationships with others. Meaning this, this is not optional. You don't get to choose to just run back to where you're comfortable. The option is not, well, listen, I'm checking out of this. I'm just going back to do my thing because this is just a no, no, no. The same gospel that unites us with God is the same gospel that demands we pursue unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not an option. You say, that sounds great, but what does it look like? Well, let me give you four practical steps. I'm going to go through these quickly, but let me just say this. I really do believe if you'll grab these four steps I'm about to give you, as a fellowship, we'll be as close to heaven as we can get until we're there. If we'll live these out, we'll be as close as we can get until Revelation 7. We can go ahead and get ahead of everybody else in the game. Number one, actively pursuing gospel reconciliation always considers the needs of others. Here's where it starts. It starts by not just pursuing rightness when a wrong has been done. It starts by pursuing rightness before a wrong has been done. It speaks to all of us. If we would simply begin to live out Ephesians 5, 21, what did Paul say? Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. If you weren't here, I spent two weekends unpacking just that verse for two weekends. That's the only verse I preached. I gave you this application. Let me put it back here on the screen. Here's what we said. Let's read it out loud together. In every way I relate to you, I consider you more important than me. A lot of the stuff that happens between us as brothers and sisters in Christ, in particular the stuff that happens between us as brothers and sisters in Christ from different cultures, it'd be dealt with if we just lived this out. In every way I relate to you, I'm going to consider you more important than me. Listen, if what was true about us positionally was already true about us practically, this is the only step we need. You know what this is? That's heaven. We don't need the other three steps in heaven that I'm about to give you. In heaven, guess what? We're just going to consider everybody else more important than us. You know why? Because we don't have a flesh anymore. Our sin's been dealt with. The power of sin is gone. It's been defeated. And we get to live filled with the fullness of Christ and Christ alone. And when we do that, guess what's going to be the reflection of that? In every way I relate to you, I'm going to consider you more important than me. Doesn't matter. Culture, color, background, experience, none of that's going to matter. Why? Because it's just who Jesus is. 
That'd be all we need. However, there will be times while we are becoming one that a brother or sister in Christ from your own culture or another culture does something, says something, or even implies something that you will deem hurtful or offensive. Listen, that's going to happen in every church, but it's sure enough going to happen in a multicultural church. It's going to happen. And when it does, let me give you three more steps. Number two, actively pursuing gospel reconciliation always assumes the best and communicates to clarify. Think about this. Jesus doesn't relate to me based on what I do. He relates to me based on who I am and who I am becoming in him. We got to do the same thing with each other. You see, when somebody does something and it changes the way we relate to them, we're no longer Christ-like. Because Jesus doesn't relate to us based on how we treat him and how we perform and how we live. He relates to us based on who we are. We need to choose to relate to one another based on who we are in Christ, not what somebody did that we thought was offensive or hurtful. That can't be what defines the relationship. It's not who Jesus is. It's what Paul wrote about when he talked about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, listen to what he said. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes is ever ready to believe the best of every person. You hear that? Ever ready to believe the best of every person. It hopes, its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Here's what we're learning from this. Paul's teaching us. When we do in a situation feel like we've been wronged or we've been hurt, don't assume the worst and let your heart run to that. Assume the best of your brother and sister in Christ and first go to them to make sure what you heard or what you experienced was really the attitude of their heart. Start there. Number two, or number three. Always, gospel reconciliation always seeks to first understand one's heart privately rather than calling out one's action publicly. So you get clarification and you find out, you know what? What they did was wrong. They were in the wrong. This did hurt me. How do you handle it? Well, of course, how you handle it. You go to social media and you post about it. <laughs> you call them out in front of God and everybody. Listen to me. Public forums like social media are never the platform for confronting a brother or sister in Christ. Let me say it again. I want you to hear me. Public forums like social media are never I'm not sure you got that. They are never the right platform for confronting a brother or sister in Christ. Let me prove it to you. Jesus gave us an example of how to do this in Matthew 18. Very specifically. Look what he said. If your brother wrongs you, go and post about it. No. What did he say? Go and show him his fault. Between you and him, privately. And if he listens to you, (laughs) you won your brother. You've won your brother. Now, it goes on. You can read Matthew 18. If he doesn't listen, there's another step. You take two or three and you go back again. And if he doesn't listen, the scripture says you get the church involved. You get the the elders of the church and they, they get involved because right, we need to be conformed. It's not that repentance doesn't need to happen and repentance doesn't need to be done. It does. But here's how it happens. We start in private. Let me give you a couple of 
guidelines as it comes to social media. Number one, if you're about to post something that involves or is about another brother or sister in Christ, number one, pray before you post. Just simply say, Jesus, is there anything about what I'm about to say that could be misunderstood, misconstrued, or be offensive towards a brother or sister in Christ from my culture or another culture? That's it. Just pray it. And then here's the second one. When in doubt, don't. If you can't with certainty, after praying over it, say, I'm absolutely positive that this is not going to do that, then just don't do it. Your relationship with your brother or sister in Christ is more important than the point you're trying to make. It's more important. So number four. Pursuing reconciliation always forgives when wronged because you know you will soon need forgiveness. You may be the one being hurt right now, but let me tell you what, you're going to be the one hurting somebody else soon. And I know that because we all will. We are going to hurt one another intentionally and unintentionally, but by God's grace, we can grow and learn through forgiveness. And again, we get to some of this kind of stuff, and some people say, okay, I I know, I know is what the Bible says, but how many times do I have to forgive? Hey, did you know when Jesus said it, Peter asked that very question? Let me show it to you. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often have I got to forgive my brother who sins against me? And Peter thought he was being generous. He said, up to seven times. Jesus said, I don't say up to seven times, but 70 times seven. 490 times? No, that's not even what Jesus meant. He was using hyperbole to say there's no end. If you're keeping count, you're not really walking in the forgiveness of Christ. Because that's the same way Paul taught us to forgive in Ephesians. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 4, what did Paul say? Forgive each other just as God in Christ has what? Let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad that God doesn't have a scorecard with 490 tabs? Bless God, Vance. You are at 489 one more time. No, guess what? The forgiveness of Jesus is just again and again. Listen, sometimes in my life, transparent, it's for the same thing over and over over that's how he longs to forgive through us but only Jesus can do that I don't have time to unpack it I'm just going to put this up here on the screen you can take a picture if you're interested in it seven expressions of what living out forgiveness looks like and there's scriptures with each of them we're not going to unpack it you can take a picture of the screen if you want it do it quick I'm about to be gone with it it's about to be over Resisting revenge, not returning evil for evil, wishing them well, grieving at their calamities, praying for their welfare, seeking reconciliation so far as it depends on you, and coming to their aid in distress. When you begin to live out forgiveness, that's what it looks like. All right. Let me give you the last thing. And I mean really this time. It's the last thing. Practicing oneness means radically demonstrating the power of the gospel. And here's the conviction. We believe the gospel and only the gospel is the power of God for reconciliation. 
It's not social movements. It's not legislation. It's not education. Listen, if social movements and education and legislation could fix this, we'd have fixed it a long time ago. The only hope is the gospel. And let me tell you what, when I I look around this room, let me tell you what I see. Hope. And I don't just mean hope, church. I see hope that God is doing this. God is reconciling people together. Paul said it, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Then notice what he said, to the Jew and also the Greek. Reconciling. Jesus said it, by this all men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one. Let me tell you something, Hope. The world needs to see this. The world needs to see this. There's no way in a sermon like this today I can exhaust everything that we needed to talk about. I hope you'll forgive me for the stuff I didn't, wasn't able to get to. We just, there's just no, no way in one sermon. But I've tried today to share with you the burden of my heart, give you some answers, answers to some tough stuff in Scripture, and direct us into a course of pursuing unity as a fellowship. It's going to be work, and it's going to be uncomfortable. Don't go into this blind thinking it's just going to be heaven. We're not in heaven yet. But it's coming. It's coming. So we're going to do two things today as we close. Number one is we're going to stand and we're going to worship together. We're going to worship together. Let me tell you why we're going to do this. And I want to encourage you today. I know if you got a place you got to be, then you got to go. But listen, if you don't have to be somewhere right now, I'm encouraging you, don't let this be a time you leave early today. We've laid some heavy truth, and there's nothing like worship together. You know why? Because that's what we're going to do in heaven. We're going to worship together from every tribe. The scene that we read about in Revelation 7 is multiple cultures worshiping around the throne. So there's some power as we worship. We're going to worship together. And while we're worshiping, we're going to have pastors. They're going to get in place right now up here along the front. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you have something in your life you need to pray over, these pastors are going to be here for you to pray, to, for them to pray with you. The altars are going to be open. If you feel burdened to come pray for our church, you can just get in one of these altars. We're just going to worship for a moment. But here's the second thing. As you leave today, I'm giving you a challenge. Tomorrow, if your health and schedule will allow you to do it, I'm calling our entire church tomorrow to a 12-hour fast from 6 a.m., to 6 p.m. You can eat after 6 p.m., so don't, don't, start, don't start panicking, all right? A 12-hour fast, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and I'm asking you to fast from two things, food and social media for 12 hours. Now, for some of you, social media is going to be harder than food. For 12 hours tomorrow, we're going to fast from those two things. Now, if you don't understand what fasting is, when you leave today, there's going to be a sheet out on the table. You can pick it up that will explain to you what fasting is and why we do it. It's setting aside something that we normally do for the purpose of seeking God in prayer. I want us for 12 hours tomorrow to use the time we would normally spend in social media and food, and that's going to be a lot of time for some of us. And we're going to dedicate it to pray for our fellowship. And we've given you a little booklet that says 12 hours 12 prayers. We're giving you one thing per hour. 
right out of Scripture. Search me, remind me, give me, conform me, convict me, make me, help us, guard us, unite us, protect us, overwhelm us, strengthen us. Twelve hours, twelve prayers. All day tomorrow, we're going to seek the face of God and ask Him to continue to do this miracle at Hope Church. Teddy, you and the team come. You know what time it is. You know what we need to adjust to get them out so the next crowd can come in. Uh, it's part of being uncomfortable here, Teddy, in a multicultural church. we got to adjust a little bit. So y'all just figure out what we're going to sing and the time we need to be out by, and let's worship God together. Jesus, I pray that in this moment... If there's anyone in this building that doesn't know Jesus, that they would see in reconciliation the power of the gospel and be drawn to faith in Christ. That they'd come to one of these pastors at the front and just say, I need Jesus. Lord, for believers that need to pray about something with a pastor, I pray they'd come. For believers that need to get an altar, I pray they'd come. God, have your way as we worship. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.